You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. dark side and the bright side, these two ideas we'll be talking about today. Uh, again, by way of an illustration, I, um, I happened upon my, my, my daughters have been listening to audiobooks all the time. They love listening to stories. Uh, and recently, in the past several months, my daughters have been listening to, um, before, uh, Andrew Peterson's books. And, and then we, before that, we were listening to uh, the books of Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis. And, and no doubt many of you are so familiar with that. They've even been made into movie pictures and everything. Uh, but there's four, four main characters in the Chronicles of Narnia and throughout the other books of the C.S. Lewis, the Narnia trilogy there or the, I guess it's six or seven books, I believe it is. Um, and there's Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter, uh, kind of the four siblings, if you recall. And throughout the books, they are kind of going in and out of Narnia. They're, they're kind of falling into Narnia through the wardrobe or whatever it might be and experiencing all kinds of adventures and meeting Aslan and saving the world of Narnia and kind of drifting back in uh, to the regular world in which they live. And it's a fascinating story as you go into each book has its own kind of narrative and storyline. And yet Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter are, are pretty much continually in all the stories throughout the end. And the very last book of the series, the Chronicles of Narnia and, and all of these, is uh, the very last book is um, The Last Battle. Are you familiar with that one? The Last Battle. And there's a lot of extraordinary things that happen in this one, but one that kind of struck me the other day I was reading it and someone had quoted this event that had happened and I had totally forgotten about it. But it is the fact that there's a, towards the end of the book, uh, in fact, the very end of the book, spoiler alert, is that uh, uh, the, the, the kids actually get in a train accident and die. It's a sad thing. And yet what's interesting about the book is the very last page of the book talks about them uh, appearing in Narnia and living eternally or forever in the land of Narnia. And the sense that that was really just the title page to their whole life. Now their real life begins. And it's this beautiful picture of the afterlife of what happens after death. But before that, what's striking is because at the end is, is there's one person who's left out. And, and in pages before that, there's a, there's a story where they're speaking to some characters in Narnia and they say and they speak of how the chronicles of Narnia speak of four characters. And they said there should be a second queen because it's Queen Lucy at that time. And there should be a second queen. Where is Susan, they say. And I had forgotten all about this. And they talk and, and Edmund actually answers, I think, and he says, oh, yes, Susan, she's no longer a friend of Narnia. It's really kind of a startling thing because throughout the book she's instrumentally involved and, and extraordinarily uh, in, in, involved in the whole situation. It's the Chronicle of Narnia especially. And then towards the end C.S. Lewis presents the situation where all of a sudden Susan is no longer interested in Narnia. Susan is no longer finding herself to Narnia. In fact, it says that she is no longer a friend of Narnia. And in fact, one of the sister, I think, says that she's actually entered a particular silly phase of her life where she only cares about the parties and uh, boys, I think it is, as she's grown up into a young woman in the real world, I guess you could say, outside of Narnia. And it struck me with the similarities in this passage which is speaking about This aspect of faith and belief which the author of Hebrews has been urging us with with quite stark 
phrasing and, and teaching over the last couple of chapters of really putting it in our phrase of the importance of faith and the importance of belief coupled with endurance. And it is in this passage where it gives a, I would say, startling and almost heavy message. But then, I, like I said, coupled with a brighter side of better things that is still to come. And at the end of chapter six, the most beautiful passages of hope, that hope is a, a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. But before he gets there, he warns those of you who are listening and reading and hearing this message. And if you're not careful, and if we don't take our faith urgently, if we don't take it seriously, there may be a place in which we'll just fall away, no longer believe those stories of Narnia that we once did. And so this passage is one of the, I would say, most singularly debated or challenging passages in the entire book of Hebrews. Almost every commentator or person I was studying in order to try to grasp and understand this passage, uh, at the beginning line was like, basically, this is the most complicated passage in all of Hebrews. Good luck, you know, kind of a thing, you know? And I'm like, yay, that's exciting. And this is also, though, why we uh, preach in this way and in this manner in this church. Maybe you're not familiar to this kind of style where we reach, where we preach through a book. Uh, because on a Sunday morning in February, I wouldn't necessarily be running to this passage and choosing it. And yet we find ourselves here today on this Sunday by the Lord's will. We find ourselves going to this passage and I think it's important that we don't avoid the more difficult passages in the scripture. Is that, is that okay? Are we with me on that? In the sense that I could run to the passages that I feel most comfortable and understand completely and uh, run to that every Sunday but all you would get was a hobby horse from me and not get the entirety of God's word. And so today as a church we're approaching scripture with reverence, uh, with the fear of God and yet with the comfort and confidence in the Holy Spirit spirit that he will illuminate our understanding to understand what this is because I think it has great benefit to us and encouragement and confidence for your faith as it does for mine today. And, and this passage, I don't, I don't believe it is something in which we as believers should be fearing in any way for it talks about how it is impossible for those who do not believe in a sense uh, to be restored into p- repentance, this sense of they have fallen away. And so what does that mean? And so I don't really aim to scare you today or I don't believe this passage is doing the same. In fact, I believe I, I, we aim to point you to Jesus Christ, to the better things, the things that belong to salvation, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But the author of Hebrews does present these two sides of the coin, faith or belief and unbelief. And he tells it in a way today, we, we're gonna talk about it, the dark side, the bright side. And, and I think right now, personally examining our hearts and, and being confident in, in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is where we are meant to stand. And yet it is also recognizing the fact that there will be those who deny the faith and they will fall away into what is called apostasy throughout this passage or throughout the history of the church. And yet I'm also sensitive to the fact that this concept, this, this talking about can also bring up very emotional things in people. Because we all know someone who we love dearly. We all have someone who we understand we wish would believe, who once believed and no longer does. And so this, this does touch home emotionally, some with you for maybe your own family members. I, mean, I can think about people who I have and friends of mine who grew up in the same situation and yet today have want nothing to do with the things of Narnia, you could say. <laughs> and yet here with nothing to do with the actual truth of God. And so how does that happen? How is it that happened when both of us grew up in the same situations and yet totally different paths are chosen. And so for you, emotionally, I think this can be a a challenging passage to even consider and think through. 
but I believe it's worth uh, pursuing here today. The, the idea that the passage is really going through is this big general theological term uh, is called apostasy, and it is a warning against apostasy. Apostasy is just basically a general term for a denial of one's held beliefs. It is a, an abandonment of your faith. It is the, not necessarily heresy, which is kind of a, an aberration of a doctrine or a twisting of a doctrine, but it is a total renunciation of the doctrine. I don't want anything to do with it. It is, I once was this, and now I'm something else, and I want nothing to do with it. So this idea is called apostasy, and this is a warning against that. So this is, this is around the realm of faith. And the other crucial point to take note in this passage is, is speaking about the, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew Christians, new believers, and yet written in a time of intense persecution. So these people have been going through and have gone through really unsettling times, very difficult times, challenging times, places of real physical persecution or simply a putting down of their status within the society. They are enduring public reproach. In fact, Hebrews 10 uh, verse 31 through 39 describes some of the things that they themselves have gone through It says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Some of you are publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes partners with those who were so treated. And yet you had compassion on those who were in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you yourself had a better one. So they were having their property robbed. They were having themselves exposed to reproach and shame in public because of their faith was contrary to the cultural assumptions at that time. So my point is these people are going through a trial. They're going through hardship and persecution. They're going through a difficult time. And so what the author of Hebrews is encouraging them is saying don't give up when the fire gets hot. Don't jump out. Don't escape. Just endure. Uh, 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 Keep running. Keep walking. Hold fast. And this is his words because it is difficult. It's a challenging thing. Don't give up. And so this is what he's encouraging them to go through. And, And yet in that moment, there is a moment where when that fire, when that hardship, when that difficulty comes, where you have a choice, am I gonna believe in this? Am I going to sing like the song we sang earlier that that he is a good, good father? Am I gonna continue to believe that? Every one of you are gonna have a time in your life where you're gonna be faced with that. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging you, believe, trust, walk, keep going. I remember even reading recently, there's a child's version of Pilgrim's Progress. I've been reading that with my kids. It's been a lot of fun. But the story of Christian who's going on the road. There's Christian and Faithful. And Faithful is a character that who, who as they enter this city that's trying to distract them off of the way, uh, they enter Vanity Fair. Are you familiar with this? And they enter Vanity Fair and they are in there, they are falsely accused, they're imprisoned and they're brought before a wicked judge and they're condemned to death and Faithful, the character Faithful stands up and he proclaims his faith and his love for the true king in the celestial city against the wicked prince. And, and, and it is this that, that makes them uh, froth with anger and hate him and actually condemn him to be burned. And it says that he was righteous and faithful in this and yet he was ridiculed, tortured, finally burnt at the stake and faithful lives up to his name as a martyr in the Pilgrim's Progress, a story of real life situations and yet a, a, a kind of a, a picture of what it's like to live the Christian life. 
the one who suffers and dies for what he believes in. He remains faithful despite the hardest and most difficult pressure that you could ever face. And Christian is then strengthened by his, his, uh, the testimony of faithful and he is set free and leaves and go- continues on the road and the story continues. But I think this is the, the point that we're all left with here, that when the pressure comes for us, are we going to continue to believe or will we give in and fall away and reject the faith? So who is exactly the, and, and then this, this passage brings up really two main questions for us as we try to understand it. In verse four, it says, for it is impossible in the case of those, of those. Verse four, you might see it on the screen here. Verse, so the, the first question we're gonna be kind of looking at is trying to grasp it. Who are the those? <laughs> okay, who, who's those? Who, who's he talking about? Is he talking about believers or unbelievers? Who is he talking about? And then the second two challenging verses are in verse four where it says it is impossible and then later on, verse six, it is fallen away. What does it mean? Is it truly impossible for these people to be restored? Uh, that can't make sense. And So is it impossible for them to be restored and then fallen away? What does that mean to truly fall away? So I'm gonna kind of simply walk through some of these ideas today and then we'll finish with the brighter side of better things that I am sure of, he says. So the first is the number one that I believe uh, there's two really main ways of interpreting the, who these people are that he's talking to. And the first is this idea of it, maybe he's talking to genuine believers, So one main interpretation when he's actually talking to people who had once been enlightened, who had once tasted of the heavenly gift and had been saved, you could say. This group of people seems to have a lot going for them. They've, like I said, have all of these things which seem to reflect salvation. I mean, how is it possible that one could have been enlightened, tasted of heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of age to come? How could one have all of that and yet still fall away? So they must be believers is what many people would say. So the group of last week even we looked at, those were kind of immature believers who need to grow up. They're spiritual toddlers. They, they've been given every opportunity. They, they're, they should be teachers by now, but they're still needing milk. Here, this group seems to have been given every opportunity likewise. They've been enlightened, tasted of these things. They've been around the church and people and faith. And so it seems as if they've given every opportunity, but at this point, it seems that they've chosen to bite the hand that feeds them. Does that make sense? Seems that they've chosen to go the opposite direction. But this interpretation would argue that that, that these genuine believers are now backslidden. So they have kind of fallen away from the faith that they once believed in. They're still believers. They're still what we would say in modern terms, saved, but they are fallen away. And and many people would say in regards to this in verse six, you can look at verse six and it says this word, since they are crucifying. The, The idea here is that these potentially believers who are presently living in a state of denying Christ, though internally saved. And so the challenge here would be saying this word since they are crucifying, that's in the present tense. They are currently doing that right now. Though they may not do that for eternally, they are right now now crucifying again Jesus and they are also currently presently holding him up to contempt into mockery again. So in their lifestyle of rebellion against their faith they are currently presently crucifying and holding him up to contempt. So that's what one interpretation of this passage would say that these are believers who are backslidden who are currently living in a state of unbelief though though they will one day return. All right. The other passage, the other way of interpreting which I find myself landing in which makes a little more sense to me in the way I've studied it is that this is actually speaking to a group of unbelievers. 
a group of unregenerate people who do not believe but seemed like true believers. And kind of you could say almost the, um, what is it, the tares among the wheat kind of a thing from the parable of the weeds. But this is this passage in, in speaking that these are people who have really ultimately faked out a lot of people along the way. They, they experienced almost all of the same things in which other people have experienced but not truly internalized it. They've not let the, 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 uh, the seed take root. They were given every privilege. First John 2.19 speaks about this in some ways where it says they went out from us but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us but they went out that it might, not become, that it might become plain that they were not of us to begin with. So one of the main reasons for my choice of this view and really understanding that he's speaking specifically to unbelievers is the fact that when he speaks to those, this group in this passage, he changes the way he's speaking to the group. In the beginning last week, if you were to see in verses 11 through 6-3, uh, 5-11, it says that we have much to say to you. And Paul gives a warning to those who are dull of hearing and yet still believers and he speaks to them specifically in this way. We Speak to you. But then in verse four, he switches it. And he says what? But yet there are those. That's kind of a different group. He speaks to a different group of those. And then later on in better things in verse nine, he says, but yet we feel confident and sure of this in this way that in your case, that you are beloved and we feel sure better things for you. That's verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So in my view, he, he has this understanding of like he's speaking to groups who are kind of dull of hearing that need to grow up but are saved and then he switches to an unbelievers who are among them or they know of who are fallen away and who have faked people out for many years. And then he speaks to those who uh, kind of back to the audience of believers, the church, and he says, but you, I feel confident and sure of your hope of better things that you have salvation. And so this is kind of the way I'm seeing this group of people that we're looking at today in verses four through eight specifically, that this is a group of unbelievers who have uh, kind of faked their way along, have experienced some of the blessings of church and faith, but never taken it upon themselves to have it internalized and be transformed by it. They've casually gone about it. And I think this is backed up also with the main background of the storyline which has been in our minds this whole time. If you remember in Hebrews 3 and 4, uh, we talked about the storyline that is in the background narrative which is the storyline of Canaan, the promised land. You guys remember this, where we are to enter the rest, strive to enter the promised land, but there were those who came up to the edge, to the precipice of that promised land and did not believe, and the Bible says that they did not enter because of their unbelief. And so in the background is Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 where they sent spies into the land. They were afraid. They did not trust God. And God ultimately says, how, how long will these people not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done for them? So in all the things that they have seen and yet they choose still not to believe. They've seen all these amazing things happen but they do not believe. And then in that same chapter of Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, take care, brothers, lest there is in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, lest you fall away from the living God. The story of the Israelites here, numbers, not entering rest, not entering the promised land because of unbelief. And then here he brings up a warning that this may happen for you as well if you do not believe. 
because there will be among you, some of you in the same group of Israelite people, you could say, who will come up to that choice, they will come up to that place, some will believe and enter, and some will choose to fall away. And so, unfortunately, like I said, emotionally, this is very real for some of you. You know this feeling. I've talked with some in this place and their own children, and how is it that we reconcile these things of, of feeling as if they have broken our hearts we want to just tell them and help them and do everything for them, but at some point, they come to a place where they make the choice for themselves. And we pray and we, we hold our faith and we know that God can change the hardest of hearts. <laughs> and in that we believe and that was what we trust. And yet, there, it is that, not that this is a group that has not heard the word or not given a privilege or even is a new believer, a new situation. What is spoken about is that this group has received privilege upon privilege. They are, you could say, privileged in the word. It says that they had once been enlightened. This is verse four. They had once been enlightened. Like, this means to give light or knowledge by teaching. They had once had the light bulb kind of go on. The seed had landed. They received it with joy, but it lacked roots and immediately fell away when it got difficult and the sun came out. This group had also tasted of the heavenly gift. It also says that they tasted the goodness of the word of God in the age to come. I believe that word tasted is on purpose. It is, yes, taste and see that the Lord is good, but in that understanding is taste and internalize and eat. This taste is doesn't mean ingesting of taking it down and letting it transform you. Taste is this kind of personal experience of something but not swallowed and eating the goodness of God and taking in the bread of God, the bread of life. John Owen says that tasting does not always necessitate eating, much less digesting and turning into nourishment the truth of God's word. And here I think that is happening. And then there's a phrase here that, that is shared in the Holy Spirit. This is a tough one because how is it that one could share in the Holy Spirit and and not truly believe and persevere? And I believe this idea is speaking about that they are partakers of the benefits of the Holy Spirit. That even within this church, uh, Jerry talked about it earlier, the spiritual gifts that are present in this place and being used. We had an annual meeting yesterday where we heard from person after person who are using their spiritual gifts to bless the church. And you can be part of a community where you can share in the blessings of the Holy Spirit and yet not really believe in the Holy Spirit. You can be part of a regular church life. You can experience all kinds of extraordinary things and yet not truly believe and persevere. Jesus himself says this. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Did we not do all these things? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me. I think we have to be careful in sharing of the benefits of the Holy Spirit and consuming the blessings of the Spirit without actually living by the Spirit or even walking in the Spirit ourselves. It's too easy to want the benefits without choosing to believe and walk and be transformed. And I know that's a challenging thing to even think through and discover and 
And I don't know where anyone's heart is, but that is what is here, this passage is meant to. Let us look within us. Where is your belief today? My Sunday school class, we just read the Apostles' Creed together as we're studying, and one of the last lines is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's this aspect of, I believe in the things I wanna get from God and faith and belief. God, I just need to get out of where I'm at and just give me what I need. Give me the benefits, give me the blessings of Christianity and faith. Just I want those things, but I don't really want you. You know, I, I want Jesus, but I don't really wanna pick up my cross and carry him, carry it with me and follow him and be disciple. I just wanna casually join the road on the Pilgrim's Progress and then leave it whenever I feel like it. When the going gets difficult and hard. This passage is warning against that kind of thinking. Be careful, because this is an all or nothing. Christianity is not just a side gig to life. It's all or nothing. The stakes are high. Jesus gave his life and shed his blood for you. So this idea here that he leads into this kind of final warning is this sense of that that there, there is this, this sense of impossibility that if you are living in a state of unbelief, if you are rejecting Jesus, there is an impossibility of restoration. And this theme of impossible is used four different times in the book of Hebrews. And it's used most famously, some of you are probably very well known with it, Hebrews 11 verse six where it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Could be possible that is there a point in which it is unknown to human beings that we would never know but God would know that they've crossed a point where they cannot return and some would say this impartable sin and just there's an idea of Romans 1 where they choose their sin and pursue their sin and God gives them over to a debased mind. All of these things are unknown to us though in the perspective of God I do not know but but this sense is, is not really what I feel like he's speaking about. It is in this, this warning, this, this tone in which he is asking you to consider the state in which you find yourself in. Are you in a state of unbelief, rejection, and rebellion, and hatred, and contempt against God? Because if you are, this challenge, this is a warning for you. But if you're in a place, yes, of doubt or frustration or whatever it might be, but, but if you are learning and yearning and hungering for God in any manner, in any way, he is there to say, of that I feel sure of better things of your salvation. I think if you are in a state of committing total apostasy and falling away from God and you are crucifying him, you are not listening or hearing any of these words. But if today you find yourself in your heart tender in any manner, in any way, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and drawing you back to himself. And that is an evidence of true salvation, if not the greatest evidence of all. And so here he, he says ultimately these people are presently crucifying Jesus again. Is that possible? Well, no, of course not. We can't crucify Jesus again. But in a sense, we are in our rejection as we fall away, as we rebel against him in our apostasy. Oh, what it is like, what it's like, what is that like? Well, in verse six it says it is like we are basically taking Jesus and we ourselves are nailing him to the cross again. And then we are openly mocking, shaming him and spitting in his face. We are biting the hand that is feeding us. We are lifting him up to the cross. 
And so this is what it is like to walk through this place where you have been given every privilege, you have sat under every message, you have been given copies of the word of God and mentors, and you have been given the church of Christ, and you have taken it and thrown it back in his face. Now I understand, I understand that many of you maybe come from situations or some of you from, I don't know your situation, but you might have gone through difficulty with faith. You might have been wronged by pastors or churches in the past. You may have gone through situations that have caused you to doubt whether God truly is good. I recognize that probably in all of our lives we go through these things. In fact, today on social media it is very popular for a phrase, what's called deconstruction phase very popular today, I don't have time to get into it, where this idea of let us deconstruct our faith down to the very basics and let us kind of pull out the rug from everything that came before and start over fresh. And there is in some level a healthy thing for that in some ways of let us consider what is true or what is it that we've just been told to accept as true. And so there is a healthy thing, but I think in some sense there becomes a sense of of self-aggrandizement that I am the one who knows it all and anyone else has nothing to say to me for my identity and myself is what rules. And so what happens is they deconstruct anything that I don't really like. And so the things I don't feel comfortable with, I reject. And ultimately what happens is we'll fall away from the true faith and we end up crucifying everything Jesus died for and presenting a faith that we make of our own creation. And I believe I see that a lot happening today and it's something that we need to be careful of and in this aspect. And then he goes on and gives us this illustration that is so easy to understand. It's so simple to grasp right away where he speaks about in verses, uh, what is it, verse seven and eight where he speaks about the land, the ground, the soil hearkening back to Jesus' parable of the sower where he says, look, there's a land that has received rain, not once, not twice, but it is land rain soaked. It's soaking wet. It has plenty of rain. The word of God has been poured out on you. That's what he was saying earlier. The word of God has been poured out on you year after year, and yet you're still a spiritual toddler. What's going on? That's what he was saying last week, and then he moves into the same thing and says, look, the word of God is poured out on you. Bear fruit, the fruit of the spirit, and yet the land will... As it says in verse eight, the land that is land soaked and yet still bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. It's not true faith. So many opportunities. The rocky soil, it comes and steals and chokes out the land. Let that soil today, in this moment, let it take within our hearts, let it be engrafted, let it be rooted, and let it bear fruit. And then he changes from the dark side into the brighter side in conclusion here this morning where he says ultimately, but for you, he switches his audience and he says, but for you people, we speak in a way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And here I think we begin to see some clarity with the whole passage where the author, in a way, puts on his pastor hat. I guess you could say he was being a pastor earlier as well where he was warning of things that he probably didn't feel comfortable with sharing just like I do. (laughs) And yet I know I'm called by God to say these things. It is not necessarily my favorite thing to say but it's something that is important for us all to hear because pastorally, though he speaks sternly with a warning, he then couples that with a comforting, loving hug (laughs) where he gives confidence 
And he speaks pastorally because he knows the people he's talking to and he loves the people. He knows there are unbelievers among them that need to hear this message of the warning, but he knows there are many who are seeking God's word, who are the good soil, who are receiving the word and growing and bear fruit. And he says, keep on with that. And he does this because he loves the people. And I think we can really see the preacher out in here where he loves the people. Of you people, I feel sure of better things. And I likewise can say the same for you. I'm not a perfect, I don't have it all figured out all the time, I make mistakes here. Uh, but I can say that I, I can say these words with him, that in confidence I do love you people. And, and of you as a church, as a whole, right? I feel confident of better things, the things that belong to salvation. I feel sure of the desire that so many of you express day in and day out, week in and week out, of your desire to grow in the word, your desire to grow in the, in the love of Jesus and to then proclaim that to a people who desperately need to, need to hear the message of salvation, that Jesus loves them, that he died on the cross for their sins and he has saved them from their sin and from death and has given them eternal life. And if we would only for by grace we have been saved. These are the things that I am positive with and he speaks with this pastoral tenderness and this loving care. As Jude 22 even says, as Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. For there will be times when you have doubts and you have struggles and you have understanding. You don't know the answer to that question. But in the church community, we're to be merciful with one another and to love each other through these things. And so he speaks tenderly in a way. In fact, the only time he refers to the people in Hebrews as his beloved people is right here in verse nine. He says, you are my people, the people whom I love, my beloved. And then he gives them confidence. I'm confident in you, the things of better things, the things of salvation, the things that we can be sure of, the things that matter, eternal security. I'm confident of these things because he knows the people and he loves the people and because he knows God and he says in verse 10, for God is not unjust. He will judge properly. He will see your love for him and the life that you have given for him. He will not overlook these things. He will see the truth, believe in him and he will be faithful. He knows God. God is just and righteous and he loves you. And then he knows the way. And the way of faithfulness in Christ, the way of faithfulness of the Christian life is not always just an explosion of a singular thing, but often a daily faithful trusting of God and patience to continue walking and living in the Spirit. The way he uses it in my way is ultimately boiled down to two words, faith and patience, which is found in verse 12. But he gives a sense of urgency, like don't be lazy and sluggish. Don't be lazy in these things. Have a sense of urgency into the things of faith. So many things in life we, we carry more urgency in. Our business, our work, our fun, our vacations, and the things of God and theology and a relationship with him is secondary. If we get around of it, that in a way is being sluggish in your faith. He's saying you're being dull of hearing. Grow up, eat the meat, go on to maturity, he's saying. Do not be sluggish in these things, he's imploring you. And then run with an urgent assurance and hope. And that's where later on, like I said, next week, where he's hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Verse 19 of chapter six, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is the hope we have and we're to imitate that hope. We're to imitate leaders who have gone before us and to imitate their faith and their patience and to live 
with faith and patience to keep walking and to keep from falling. And this is the verse I want to close with. There's a, my pastor growing up used to say uh, this doxology from Jude, and maybe you're familiar with it when I read it, but in, in Jude 24 and 25, he used to often close messages or when we would have the Lord's Supper, uh, they would say Jude 24 through 25 together. And it struck me as I was trying to think of a way to summarize this, for the passage has warned us to keep from falling. We must believe and press on with endurance, urgency, to have faith and trust in God and patience day in and day out. It will take a lot of patience and walking in the Spirit. So this is in the sense of, of, of giving us this idea, this sense of it. how is it that we can keep from falling? How is it that we can remain faithful? And I love the way Jude puts it right before we come to the table here this morning. And Jude 24 says, now to him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. You want to keep from stumbling? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Worship him. The little things and the big things. Fix your eyes on him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able. Let me close in prayer before we come to the table. Father, we thank you that you are able. We thank you, God, that even in this moment, in the closing moments of the service, that we have an opportunity to presently participate in our faith. In this moment to demonstrate that our faith is strong in you. Yes, no, we have these things that we face, but Lord, we know and we believe and we trust that you are able to keep us from stumbling. To you, we will worship and we will glorify you. God, help us in this. Work with us. Be patient with us. (laughs) Teach us. Lord, strengthen our faith this morning. Lord, we thank you for all you have done on the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it unites us together in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.